Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Today we are doing something really fun. We have our good friend, Dr. Casey Means on the podcast. Dr. Casey is the chief medical officer and co-founder of Levels Health. And if you haven't heard of Levels, you're going to want to tune into this podcast because what they are doing is really cool. They are one of the first companies to make continuous glucose monitors available to anybody who is interested to see what food is doing to their blood sugar, which is something we talk about on this podcast all the freaking time because it matters so much. Essentially, when you consume something, your body breaks it down into sugars and how your body uses that sugar to fuel your cells makes a huge difference on your life. So if you are eating things that are spiking your blood sugar and then making you crash, that could wreak havoc on your hormones, on your skin, on your energy, on your sleep, on pretty much everything. And we wanted to ask Dr. Casey your top questions about blood sugar because so many people have so many questions. So we asked our community, what are your questions for Dr. Casey? And now we are going to share them all with you. And I know blood sugar is something, Yasmin, that I think it's like one of the first things that you became so passionate about in the space of health and wellness because you noticed its impact on your life. Yes. And I know I talk about it a lot, but it was that instrumental in my life. And it really wasn't until, you know, I even tried Level's glucose monitor. And this is not an ad, but it was helpful for me because when people would talk about blood sugar management, I really didn't know what that meant. I mean, we've done so many incredible interviews and, you know, today's interview goes really deep into that, but I wasn't too educated. And when I realized that me missing meals, which was my MO back in the day, which is horrible, me spiking my blood sugar because I used to love rice and I wouldn't pair it, for example, with protein and fiber. All these things were driving my hormone imbalances, which were my horrible PMS at the time and acne and my energy wasn't good. And really when I put on the levels glucose monitor, I looked on their app and I was like, oh my gosh, the way I'm kind of living my life, I'm having multiple blood sugar roller coasters. So it was just so instrumental in my health journey and my hormonal balance journey that I know Kay and I were just so passionate about sharing this information and you don't even need a glucose monitor to dial it in. And you know, we talk about so many tips today, but yes, it's been so helpful, especially for energy, acne and hormones. And those are three things that you notice, but I'm a huge, huge believer in this. Totally. And why this matters is that we are headed to a place in which one out of two Americans will have prediabetes and then eventually develop type 2 diabetes. So even if you think that this doesn't matter for you, there's a huge chance that it does. Your symptoms that might seem like they have nothing to do with blood sugar actually might be connected to blood sugar. And there's so many little tips and tricks that we can implement throughout the day so that we can still consume the food that we love or more pleasure foods, but we can also balance our blood sugar. I love that, Kaya. And we'll talk all about that 
chat today with our dear friend, Dr. Casey Means. Dr. Casey is a Stanford-trained physician and chief medical officer and co-founder of Metabolic Health Company Levels. Her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease by empowering individuals with tech-enabled tools that can inform smart, personalized, and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. Dr. Casey's perspective has been featured in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and New Yorker, Men's Health, Women's Health, and so much more. We love this interview and we know you're going to love it too. So let's get into it. So we're doing something super fun today. We have our friend, Dr. Casey Means, who is the blood sugar expert on. And we asked our audience, what are your top questions about blood sugar? And we got some really, really good ones. This is one that I'm super passionate about. Um, I have a lot of physicians in the family. My husband's a nurse. And so there's a lot of people kind of coming in and out with prediabetes or diabetes. But the one thing that they say is, when they leave the hospital, they still don't know what they should be doing, how they should be eating. So we want to hear from you. If somebody is pre-diabetic or has type 2 diabetes, what kind of diet should they actually be eating to potentially reverse what's going on? Such a great question and a question that is relevant to the majority of Americans now because as we all know, half of Americans now have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, half of American adults. It's astronomical, the numbers we're dealing with. So this is highly relevant to anyone listening. Um, and I'd say there's definitely some things that apply to everyone in regards to this question. And then there's things that are a little bit more personalized. But in terms of the, the features of food that are going to be beneficial for every person trying to stabilize or improve their blood sugar levels, I'd say it really comes down to removing what I would call like the unholy trinity of modern food, which is refined, highly processed grains, refined added sugars and industrial seed oils. These three things do nothing to support our body's health in the form that they're in. Um, they're not, uh, you know, they're not, uh, food as it was found in its natural form. They're food that's gone into a factory and totally changed, um, into something that just overloads the body and the body's cellular machinery with, um, you know, these raw products that it has to process that really gums up and overwhelms the system. So in terms of refined, um, ultra processed grains, this is like taking anything like, you know, a wheat and basically taking this beautiful whole food that's got the germ and the bran and, and all of its sort of natural structure to it that the body, you know, can get fiber from and complex forms of carbohydrates and strips all of that away, um, into its just highly, highly processed carbohydrate form that's going to come into the bloodstream really quickly um, and raise blood sugar levels. Then, of course, refined sugars. There's about 50 different names for refined sugars um, from, you know, uh, cane syrup, you know, cane sugar, um, just there, there's a million. Um, and, you know, even in forms like um, agave uh, or, of course, high fructose corn syrup. Um, and this is also going to be like ultra concentrated glucose uh, that's going to come into the bloodstream really fast and overwhelm our cellular machinery and our metabolic machinery. Um, and then the reason I add industrial seed oils, this is things like corn oil, sunflower oil, canola, canola oil, vegetable oil, is because these are these like, even though they're not a form of carbohydrates, they're a form of really highly concentrated fats that uh, are, are depleted of a lot of the healthful things that come in more natural oils, like olive oil or, or avocado oil, um, that 
essentially really concentrate fat without the antioxidants and the polyphenols around them that can make it protective. So you're, you're still overloading the metabolic machinery in the body with this really concentrated form of fat. But instead of having any protective molecules around it, it's just this, this super concentrated fat. And it also can create metabolically damaging byproducts like oxi um, reactive oxygen species and, um, and sort of create disharmony in the body that is, is harmful for the metabolic uh, processes. And so really a diet that, that is founded on trying to eliminate refined ultra-processed grains, refined ultra-processed sugars, and industrial seed oils is going to make so much room for so many more healthful foods that uh, support our metabolic machinery. So those would be the, the things to kind of, I would say, get rid of or, or limit as much as possible for most people. Um, they're just not doing you any metabolic favors. And then um, in terms of like the more fun side of the question, which is like what to, what to bring into the body uh, to help with metabolic optimization and blood sugar control. To me, there's, there's at least five things that I think about trying to incorporate in like every metabolically healthy meal as much as I can. I think of them as kind of like Legos, like components for every meal. And those are fiber, omega-3s, a healthy form of protein, phytonutrients and antioxidants, and probiotics. And so I, I think about food in terms of these five elements that I'm always trying to kind of piece in to every meal. So the fiber is going to support the microbiome and be food for the microbiome, which we know is so key to our metabolic health because the all these bacteria in our gut you know, convert fiber and they also convert polyphenols to these byproducts called um, postbiotics, one of which would be like a, um, a chemical that maybe some people have heard of called short-chain fatty acids, which actually go in and become these metabolic regulators in the body. So you're actually feeding the microbiome, so they'll make things for you that go into your bloodstream to help with metabolism and blood sugar control and hunger and satiety. So fiber is a big one. Coupled with that, but a different category is like probiotic-rich foods. These are like fermented foods that actually have healthful bacteria in them. Um, as well as probiotic-rich foods often also have those postbiotic chemicals in the food itself. So like short-chain fatty acids that are actually in the food. So you're getting both the, the, the prebiotics, which is the bacteria, but also the postbiotics, the chemicals that they've made that are healthful in those foods. So this is things like unsweetened yogurt, natto, miso, kefir, kvass, sauerkraut, kimchi, anything like that's fermented that is unsweetened. These are, these are just how, such metabolic powerhouses in supporting the microbiome and giving the body postbiotics. In terms of healthy protein, um, this is so important because it's very good for satiety. It's going to fill you up and help you stabilize your blood sugar th levels throughout the day. Um, eating healthy protein with carbohydrates is actually going to lower the glucose spike overall. And so protein is really great for satiety, hunger hormones, and getting off the glucose roller coaster. So this is things like high quality, like grass-fed meats, pasture-raised chicken, eggs, wild-caught fish, legumes, beans, nuts and seeds have a good amount of protein. And then omega-3s is the fourth component that I really think about. And I try and include some omega-3 component in every single meal because omega-3s are these anti-inflammatory molecules that make, you know, make up a, our cell membranes, which are so important for all metabolic signals. You need healthy cell membranes in order to have healthy insulin signaling. And so you want to just load the body with that to create these fluid, healthy cell membranes, but also as an anti-inflammatory molecule in the body. And inflammation and metabolic health are so inextricably linked because chronic inflammation actually 
blocks some of our metabolic processes like insulin signaling from happening properly. So you want to create this sort of like healthy inflammatory milieu in the body and omega-3s can help with that. So for that, I'm thinking about, again, pasture-raised eggs are a good source of omega-3s, wild-caught fish, flax seeds, chia seeds, basil seeds, small fish like you know, sardines, anchovies, uh, mackerel, salmon. And so just trying to get like some component of that in meals. And the last one I'll mention is phytonutrients. So these are the, the, the chemicals in food that, um, give plants often their colorful nature. So like the reds and the purples and the blues, the, the actual thing that gives those colors are often these plant chemicals that have all these beautiful functions in the body, both feeding the microbiome, but also often acting as antioxidants in our cells and kind of like soaking up some of the metabolic waste products that can be reactive and damaging to our body. And so having just a really colorful diet with 30 different types of plant foods per week is what mm -hmm. I shoot for of different colors is another piece. So those are five things that I put in to basically create a body in which metabolic health is possible and which the machinery that does all the glucose processing has what it needs to do its job properly. So fiber, omega-3s, healthy protein, phytonutrients, and probiotics. And you know, when you look at any meal you're having, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's actually pretty easy to get one of those components, like to get all five components in meals pretty easily. So an example of this would be like, if for breakfast I wanna have an egg dish, then you could have pasteurized eggs. So that's going to be healthy protein, omega-3s, uh, with a side of greens and avocado. That's going to be some phytonutrients, um, some fiber, avocado, a great form of fiber. Maybe sprinkle it with some ground chia seeds on top of the avocado, and then add some sauerkraut on the side or a dollop of Greek yogurt. That's probiotics. Mm -hmm. Right there, you've got all five. Similarly, if you want to have a sweeter breakfast, you could have unsweetened Greek yogurt with some chia seeds and some berries. So right there, you've got Greek yogurt, which is probiotics. You've got some berries, which is going to be raspberries have phytonutrients and a lot of fiber. Raspberries are the highest fiber fruit, eight grams per cup. Chia seeds is going to have omega-3, and then the 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 seeds and the yogurt's going to have protein. So it's just this mental checklist that I'm always going through of like, how can I get all five of these things? And then of course, eliminate the refined sugar, the refined grains and the um, industrial seed oils. So long answer, but that's kind of how I think about what to take out and what to put in for a metabolically healthy meal. So helpful. You, you essentially gave people a roadmap, but I can't help but think of when I lived in, in Brooklyn in a particular part of town where there was not a single grocery store in the neighborhood for people. They were going to the bodega to get what they needed. And some of the foods that you mentioned, like the seed oils and stuff, they are so present. Even in foods that are labeled as healthy or natural or organic, they're riddled with some of these foods that you were saying. And maybe some people are listening, having not even known that seed oils could be potentially problematic for them. Or that Tufts put out recommendations saying, like, actually, some of these processed foods are better options for you than eating things like protein or eggs or something like that. So there's so many barriers, I feel, for people, especially in different parts of the world. So I, I guess I'm curious, you know, you're as an expert, do you think it's reasonable for people who are, let's say, living in an area where they don't have as much access? Maybe there's a higher prevalence of diabetes in those areas, actually. They need it more. How can they overcome some of those barriers? Yeah, this is this is the I mean the biggest issue I think we're facing as a country right now is that um, these metabolic diseases are just like absolutely tearing through our country and they're disproportionately affecting people who are you know unable to access this healthy food and often um, 
you know, communities of color and uh, lower so socioeconomic means. It's, it's, it's incredible how much higher the rates are when the access to food and healthcare is, is lower. And so, so this is the big challenge. I mean, from a systems level, there's so much we need to do um, and we can get to the practical side too. But, you know, we live in a country right now where taxpayer dollars go towards subsidizing unhealthy food and making it cheaper. So the lack of access and the artificial cheap nature of ultra processed foods is something we could fix if we had some strong leadership on the policy side to shift some of these dollars towards foods that we know actually make people healthy. So that's just an absolute travesty. And, um, you know, certainly an issue that I'm thinking about. And of course, like your guys team is, you know, Mark Hyman wrote Food Fix, which is about about all of this. And so it's it's profound. I mean, school lunches, all of these things, there's a lot of policy elements um, that we need to fix. But from a practical standpoint, like certainly like eating unrefined whole foods, you know, from the perimeter of a grocery store and cooking them at home, like this is going to be our best bet. But that's also like a little bit wishful thinking for everyone for every meal everywhere in the country. There's a lot of packaged and processed, you know, version, minimally processed versions of foods that are more shelf stable that I think can be like really useful. Some of the things that I personally like where you can get a lot of bang for your buck is I mean, things like canned beans, you know, like, things that are going to be, be able to stay in the pantry for two years, but have tons of phytonutrients, fiber, protein, relatively um, inexpensive. Canned fish is another option. Going to store a lot longer, easier to get, but like tuna or canned salmon or things like this, even sardines and anchovies, nut, unro like nuts, seeds, things like this. Um, and then frozen foods, like going to Costco if, if you can and getting large bags of frozen vegetables or frozen fruits and keeping them for long periods of time. I get, for instance, like my cauliflower rice at Costco and I get four, I think 16 ounce bags for $10 and it's organic and it's riced. And so that's a base of most of my meals. So, you know, I think buying in bulk, thinking about frozen canned um things that will store for longer like these are these are some things that help i think certainly if you're if you're trying to eat organic which i know a lot of people are like looking for things that are on sale that are organic i often will actually because i kind of like all i like a lot of food a lot of different types of food so i'll actually be guided in the grocery store by like what's on sale that seems the highest quality which gets me to sometimes eat new things that i wouldn't otherwise so if there happens to be a vegetable that's organic and frozen and on sale i'll buy like 10 of that and just keep it in my freezer um so those are, and then there's a lot of interesting like services now in terms of shipping food, um, which I think are interesting. So things like imperfect produce, which ships cheaper, misshapen food that might not make it to the grocery store to people's homes directly. Um, and you know, if you get that in bulk, it can sometimes be cheaper, and then you could potentially chop it up and put some of it in the freezer or whatnot. There's other services like and this is of course not not accessible everywhere in the country but like community sponsored agriculture boxes so this is like where you actually pay up front for the year to support a farm and then so you're kind of giving capital to that farm and then that farm will basically deliver somewhere in your town a box of fresh produce which is often cheaper than what you might find in the grocery store because you're kind of getting this preferential access direct to the farmer and so you know those are some of the strategies um but i think it really comes down to also just looking at labels you know like really just trying to trying to look at labels and and even if you are going with more of like a package or processed foods try and find the things with minimal ingredients 
as many of the ingredients that you actually know and recognize. And, you know, it's all about just kind of trying to do, do our best. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. You know, I'm I'm going to jump in here before we go to the next question. There's something that comes to mind. I know we started this conversation around people who are pre-diabetic and are dealing with type two diabetes, but everything you're saying, Casey, is like what I consider in my own life. And I don't fall into either of those buckets. So maybe you can kind of talk about why it's important for everyone really to be focusing on their metabolic health. And really, what does that mean for someone listening? That's like, I hear this word, but I don't really know what it means. Like, why should I care? Yeah, definitely. So metabolism fundamentally is how we turn food into energy in the body. So we take in all this food, we take in 70 metric tons of food in our lifetime on average, and our body's job is to convert that to a form of energy that we can use. It's also meant to take that food and sort of turn it into the physical structure of our body, but also convert parts of it to this currency of energy that our body uses to fuel every single every single thing that our body does. So we have 37 trillion cells in the body on average, you know, who, who knows for sure, but somewhere around that, that's a number that gets thrown around. And every single one of those cells is doing literally like trillions of chemical reactions per second. And every single one of those chemical reactions together, like bubbles up to be our actual life. That's what our mm. life is. It's just the sum total of all of these chemical reactions. And pretty much all of those chemical reactions require this currency of energy in the body called ATP to basically pay for the reaction. So this is an absolutely crazy factoid, but we make on average about 80 pounds of this molecule ATP, this payment of energy for all these chemical reactions in our body. We make about 80 pounds of it per day, but we're using it constantly so much that we never actually, we never actually gain and lose that weight. It's just constantly being made and constantly being used. But like, it's just, constant. And that's just this amazing, um, kind of stuff that's happening in the body. So we want that process to be going really, really well, because if it's off balance at all, and we can't make the energy to power our cells in our lives, our cells are going to become dysfunctional and we're going to a dysfunctional cell when that happens in mass is basically symptoms and disease. And so we have dozens of different cell types in the body. We have skin cells, many different types of skin cells. We have different types of liver cells, cells in our ovaries, cells in our retina, so many different cell types in our brain. So these dozens of different cell types. And basically the reason metabolic issues and diabetes and, and blood sugar issues are related to so many different conditions, kind of the trunk of the tree of so many different health conditions is because if this energy production process is perturbed in the body and it's showing up in different cell types, those are going to look like different symptoms and diseases. 
based on what cell type they're showing up in. But the root cause, the actual thing that's going wrong in the cell may be the same thing across all the cells, this problem of, if how, of how the body's converting food to energy. And we know right now that in 93% of American bodies, adult American bodies, there is some problem with this process, some problem with metabolic processes, metabolic health. And the thought is, is that the reason for this is that the modern world that we've kind of, our bodies have been launched into, this industrial Western world of the past hundred years or so has put such different stressors on our cellular biology and really uniquely and synergistically hurt the machinery inside our cells that do this metabolic process, this food to energy process. And that is really centered around the mitochondria of the cell, which is, you know, from high school biology, the powerhouse of the cell, this thing that actually does the final stages of converting food energy to cellular energy. And so many aspects of our life now are just hurting that part of the cell such that we're becoming metabolically dysfunctional and it's showing up as dozens of different symptoms and diseases. Nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States are related to metabolic dysfunction right now. And so this is the thing that we need to focus on as a, as a healthcare community and, and kind of move away from just focusing on managing the symptoms of all those different diseases to actually like what is fundamentally happening in the body that is problematic that's leading to these. And ultimately that comes down to supporting really supporting mitochondrial and cellular health. And so all the things I was talking about with what to remove from the diet, what to add into the diet, each of those things I'm mentioning specifically has a role in supporting and loving that part of the cell such that it can do its work. Because when the cell and the mitochondria are freed up to do their best work of converting food to energy, life becomes a lot more effortless. Like we have maximal life force. We have maximal power to our lives. This animating force that actually keeps us going, that keeps our body together is working properly. And, you know, all of a sudden the symptoms start melting away and, and every, and so the interesting way that that relates to blood sugar and why this metabolic health conversation and this blood sugar conversation are so related is because when the body is having trouble, converting food to energy, the cell basically is like, whoa, my mitochondria is dysfunctional. I can't convert food to energy properly. Therefore, I don't want more of this raw material to come into the cell because I can't process it. I am broken. Like this is, we are not doing well in here. So the, the, the cell actually adaptively stops raw food materials from coming in to be processed because it can't do it. And the result is blood sugar goes up because it's not the, the cell has blocked its entry into the cell to be processed because it cannot do it. And that is the process of insulin resistance where the cell is basically like this hormone that normally lets glucose into the cell insulin. Well, we can't take any more glucose in the cell. So we're going to block this process. And then of course, blood sugar rises. So blood sugar is this amazing biomarker of something going wrong in the metabolic processes of the cell. And, um, and so it's a readout essentially of many different things that could be going wrong in the body to essentially hurt our metabolic processes. And some of the various things in our Western world that are uniquely and synergistically impacting our mitochondrial function are our ultra processed diet, um, being very sedentary. We're not moving enough. We're not pushing the mitochondria to move through energy enough because we're sitting 
the vast majority of the day. We're not sleeping enough. Sleep is this critical metabolic recharge time. And we're sleeping like two hours less on average than we were about 150 years ago. Uh, we're chronically dealing with low-grade stress, the honking, the pings, the emails, the dings, everything. It's constant. Um, our culture is not very good about helping us have frameworks for coping with trauma, like from childhood or in our lives. So we're constantly dealing with this hypervigilant, low-grade stress state in our Western world. We're exposed to 80,000 plus synthetic toxins in our food, water, air, personal care products and homes, many of which we know are direct mitochondrial disruptors. And we're surrounded by artificial light all the time, which screws up our circadian rhythms, which are really the sort of like master regulator of our mitochondrial biology. And so there's all these different things happening. And so really kind of what our job is on our blood sugar journey, our metabolic health journey is to take stock of all these different things in our lives that could be impacting our metabolic health and unpack in our lives for us right now, what are the vectors that are probably most affecting me? Is it the sleep? Is it the processed food? Is it the chronic stress? Is it the synthetic toxins? Is it the sleep? Is it the artificial light? and unpack that and create that plan for your own body that is going to free up the ability of, of our cells to work properly and ultimately move through energy properly and therefore allow our cells to be more insulin sensitive. And then, you know, downstream of that is blood sugar levels get under control. Yeah. You know, on the face of it, when you say all these things, even for me, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm a little bit overwhelmed, but then I have to remind myself, all these examples that you mentioned, whether it's a food, the stress, the sleep, if we're under light is like everything is in our power and we have the ability to change that. So I just feel excited about it. And this actually takes me to the next question that we got from our audience, which I'm also very curious about where she asked, my blood sugar varies with where I am in the cycle, even though I'm eating the same food, like what is going on? Oh my gosh, this is such a fascinating one because women are so amazing yeah. and their bodies are changing so much over the course of a month. But like, Simply put, we are sort of metabolic uh, baseline shifts throughout the course of a cycle. So to, to super simplify it, basically in the first half of the cycle, pre-ovulation, we tend to be more insulin sensitive. Uh, our, our cells tend to be better at taking glucose out of the bloodstream and processing to energy. And in the second half of the cycle, post-ovulation in the luteal phase, we tend to be a little bit more insulin resistant. And so it's a little bit harder for our bodies to clear glucose out of the bloodstream. And it's fairly subtle, but when you actually look at the research literature, it's just, it is statistically significant. Like when you look at the differences in fasting, blood sugar, post-meal gluco post glucose levels. And so there's many thoughts to why this might be. And it, it has something to do with the ratio of like estrogen to progesterone at different parts of the cycle with estradiol, estrogens, seeming to improve the expression of various insulin signaling molecules in skeletal muscle. And so again, insulin is that hormone that is going to help you take uh, sugar out of the bloodstream into the cell to be processed. And when that insulin cell receptor uh, interaction is, you know, unfettered and that signaling can happen really, um, you know, unencumbered, we tend to be able to process glucose and bring it into the cell more effectively. And estrogen seems to have um, a positive effect on that. And so when there's a little bit more unopposed estrogen activity in the body, we tend to be more insulin sensitive. Um, and so it's pretty fascinating. And in terms of, for all practical purposes, if someone's wearing a continuous glucose monitor, or pricking their finger all throughout the course of the month, they might find that their fasting glucose or their post-meal glucose levels are a little bit higher in that post-ovulatory phase as they get closer to menstruation. 
And I think that the way I approach that in my own life is a, just awareness, you know, just knowing what's going on and that I'm this dynamic body, which is pretty cool. And two, that in that second half of the cycle, since we want to, we feel better when our glucose is more stable. Sometimes I eat a little bit like higher protein, maybe a little bit more like skewed towards keto, not, not full keto at all, but like a little bit higher fat, a little bit higher protein. I tend to try and not eat quite so late at night during that phase. Cause I know it's just going to be harder to clear that glucose. I focus a little bit more on gentle walks after meals, um, and just do some of these, maybe take some vinegar before meals and do some of these adjuncts that I know are just going to help me keep the glucose a little more stable since I'm biologically going to have a little bit more trouble potentially clearing that glucose out of the bloodstream. Women's bodies are so incredible. <laughs> and like we have an entire world within our bodies. It's just amazing. Earlier, you mentioned that there are so many different names for sugar and one of the questions that we got is, is there a difference between something like maple syrup and refined white sugar? Are there some sugars that are better than other sugars? One way to answer this question is to just briefly mention this, this sort of concept of glucose versus fructose. And the reason for that is because a very predominant sugar in our modern world is fructose. And the reason for that is because high fructose corn syrup was invented in the 1970s and increased our fructose consumption by like studies show between like 700 and 3000 percent over the course of the last 40 years since before that. So before that, it was like we were eating fruit and there was a little bit of fructose in it. And then all of a sudden it became we're just like injecting it into our bodies through sodas and liquid sugar. Fructose is a really interesting sugar because it actually affects our biology very like differently than glucose. Fructose can create a very uniquely damaging byproduct in excess called uric acid, which can directly create mitochondrial dysfunction. And so fructose is, is partially so damaging because you might not see it actually spike your blood sugar levels, which is the thing we can test for, but it is going to make you more glucose intolerant very quickly because it's essentially creating a byproduct that's going to hurt our mitochondria, which then of course is going to kind of create that dysfunction that leads to insulin resistance and then is going to make you more glucose intolerant. So it's like this vicious cycle. So that, that sugar, like anything with high fructose corn syrup that you see on a package, like that's one that I would just avoid. And if, if I had, if I had a magic wand, it could actually change one thing about our food culture in America. It would be to outlaw high fructose corn syrup of all the things I've learned over the past 10 years in medicine and nutrition. It's like, that's what I would get rid of is high fructose corn syrup because it's so damaging and it's so insidious and it's in everything now because it's so cheap to make because we subsidize corn in our country. Um, the, so that's, that's one sugar. Then it's like the question of like more natural sugars, like maple syrup, honey, agave versus like refined white bags of sugar. Like, are those different? And I would say that some of these more natural forms of sugar, like coconut sugar or honey or maple syrup, because they are coming from nature, they may have like some more healthful stuff around them. Like we know that honey has like some propolis in it and like some like other like vitamins that come in the honey that are actually like, like ha are healthy and like that have positive stuff in them. Whereas like white sugar is literally just going to be sugar. So the answer is yes. Like, and, and similar with maple syrup, it's going to have other nutrients in it and stuff like that. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to, if I am going to eat some type of like liquid concentrated sugar, it'll definitely be the more natural forms like honey or maple syrup. 
I, I certainly prefer to bake with like whole fruits, like a, like a date or a banana or something like that. But, but there are positive things that come along with those. Um, and, but at the end of the day, what's actually hitting your bloodstream from the sugar standpoint, it's the same molecule, right? Like glucose is glucose, fructose is fructose. And so, um, I do think this is where it's really valuable to use either a finger prick glucose, you know, monitor for some period of time or once or twice in your life, try a continuous glucose monitor if you can, because what you can actually see, you can test these things. You can say like, if I eat a cookie that I made with white sugar and brown sugar or honey, um, or agave or coconut sugar, what is actually happening to my blood sugar levels? Cause ultimately you do not want to be on the blood sugar roller coaster. You don't want to be spiking and crashing and it doesn't really matter what form it's coming from, whether it's more natural or less natural. So if you're spiking 50 points with both 50 milligrams per velocity with both those cookies, like then probably need to be thinking about other ways to, to get the spike down. So, so yeah, so all, always, I think the natural sugars are going to be like better because they come with, they come packaged with some good stuff. Like, but, but fundamentally I think test, this is where testing can be really, really helpful. And then of course, just minimizing sugar as much as possible in the diet. Like we, we know, and I think anyone who's been on a sugar journey of getting off sugar is that when you start to wean and reduce slowly, either cold Turkey or little by little, you lose your taste for super sweet things. I have seen it dozens of times with patients. I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in friends. And so think of it as an investment that as you take it down by 10%, like with each batch of cookies you make or whatever, like, or with your coffee or with whatever it is, like it gets your brain changes, your microbiome changes, your craving changes. And so, uh, the best investment is to just sort of try and try and wean over time and kind of just naturally lose the taste for sugar. So it becomes more, more effortless, but yeah it's nuanced. It's so funny. I'll be out at like birthday parties and events and you know, there's all these sweets and I genuinely don't have that sweet tooth. Listen, I get, I eat ice cream here and there, but just going to your point, cause I wore the glucose monitor, monitor levels. It was life-changing for me. You know, one small thing that I always talk about on the podcast, which sounds so silly, but it, I, my mind was blown was when I ate cherries on an empty stomach and I'm like, Oh, whole fruit. It's great. And then I remember being like, why do I feel so exhausted? Like I cannot work. I can't function. And Drew's like, well, check your glucose monitor. I was like, Oh, I forgot literally the biggest spike I've ever had. And it just kind of reminded me of just going back to everything we're talking about in this interview of, you know, food order, what to eat, what to have on an empty stomach. But, you know, my, my uh, taste buds for sweets definitely have decreased. And people are like, Yasmin, you're so boring. I'm like, I genuinely am not craving it. And also what I'm so passionate about is like having women feel amazing. And so much of that for me, the biggest hack, which you taught me was managing my blood sugar. Like that is the only way I can do what I do at full speed all day. So I'm just so passionate about this. So actually, you know, one thing that you brought up when you were talking about a woman's cycle and some of the tips that you personally do in your life, especially on the second phase, as we gear up to your period is drinking apple cider vinegar. So one woman asked, you know, we, like we get so many tips about lowering blood sugar, but does it actually work to have it before a meal? Like, I'd love to just get your, a doctor's view, Casey's view around this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the research definitely suggests that, that vinegar does work. And some studies show like up to a 30% reduction in a post-meal glucose spike when you add vinegar before the meal versus not which is amazing. I mean, and, and, and the mechanisms for this are not fully understood, but there's some really good 
um, hypotheses based on some of the mechanisms we know, which is that, you know, this acetic acid and vinegar, which is what gives it that sour taste and which is in all vinegar, um, it it may actually sort of slow the rate at which the stomach empties. And so instead of just like all the food going straight from your stomach into your small intestines, it might slow it so that you're getting like a, a slower glucose rise and you can process it more efficiently. You're not overwhelming the machinery to process it all at once. And that's, that's better for the body. There's also an idea that it might inhibit, um, these enzymes in the gut called um, disaccharidases, which are basically these proteins on the gut lining that that break down carbohydrates. So you may actually be like kind of getting a freebie where you're not breaking down certain carbohydrates and then they're going to get processed by um, the microbiome instead, or it's going to be slower to get into the bloodstream. So actually interfering with one of these um, gut enzymes. And then the third thought is that it might actually um, improve like insulin sensitivity or act on um, our like beta cells of our pancreas, which make insulin to kind of increase efficiency and insulin sensitivity. So there's a lot of different proposed mechanisms, but it's definitely a real, like a real thing. It's not, it's not, I wouldn't say that it's like urban legend or myth. It's, it's, it, it really does seem to help. And, and so, um, I know you guys touch on this on your amazing episode with, um, with glucose goddess, but like, there's so many ways to add vinegar to meals. You know, you can take it a couple tablespoons, one to three tablespoons in a glass of water before a meal, like apple cider vinegar is often very good for that. You can just make sure that you're using a heavy hand when you dress your salads and really make a, a very vinegar forward salad dressing with no added sugar. There's different, like sort of tonics and, um, and mocktails that people are making now with, with vinegar that you can kind of drink before a meal. But the key seems to be to, um, include it with the meal or have it, you know, five to 10 minutes beforehand, um, on an empty stomach and both, both seem to help and, um, pretty much any vinegar works. But I will note that like, if you go look at bottles in the grocery store of vinegar, just make sure to check for the sugar content, because I've been astounded by how some balsamic vinegars have like one gram of sugar, just residual from the grapes that made it. Some have like five or six grams of sugar per two tablespoons. And then the, the glazes like the, that are more concentrated sometimes have upwards of 10 grams of sugar for a couple of tablespoons. So just really try and find the one that has the least possible uh, sugar in it. I'm actually super curious to test out this vinegar hack myself. When I used my uh, levels monitor, I was actually pregnant. So it was really cool to see I specifically wanted to just kind of see how my body was responding. You know, I know that you can become more insulin resistant when you're pregnant. There's a risk for gestational diabetes. So my monitor gave me so much information. What I noticed at the time, and it's actually a question that we got, um, I wasn't having a lot of spikes, but at night I was having a lot of dips. And that was really interesting. And so one question that we got from um, one of our listeners is that, what are some tips for people who are getting up in the middle of the night due to low blood sugar? Such a great question. One that we hear all the time at levels, because there's a couple things that can cause low blood sugar at night. One that I just have to mention is that if you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor and you actually lay on that side and you put pressure on the sensor, that can actually cause a big um, dip in glucose on your, on your monitor. And so that's just one thing to keep in mind is that it could be what's called pressure induced sensor error with laying on it. So 
just, just something before people like, you know, some people get very nervous when they wake up and they see some like really low spikes into the forties. And it could very well be that that was related to pressure on the sensor. But for many people, it's, it's a real phenomenon. And we know that when blood sugar crashes, that can be a big stress signal to the body and can actually amplify your stress hormones. And that's sometimes what wakes people up out of sleep is a low blood sugar crash. So then the key is, well, how do I prevent that? And I think that the main way to do it is to avoid big spikes at night. And so this is like not eating too late at night. Certainly, you know, anyone who's learned about intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding, like this idea of giving yourself kind of like, an, you know, a buffer between when you finish your meal and when you go to bed is generally positive. But if you're someone who like that is very challenging because you get really hungry at night or stay up late at night, I'd say going for like a pure protein or pure fat snack right before bed is definitely the better option than eating like a dessert or something higher carbohydrate late at night. We tend to be more insulin resistant at night, similar to how we talked about how in the cycle we're more, maybe more insulin resistant during the luteal phase. It's also a similar thing that happens at night for a different reason, which is that melatonin, which is released to help us get sleepy when the, when the sun goes down as part of our circadian clock melatonin might actually make us a little bit more insulin resistant. And so when you put the same amount of glucose in the bloodstream late at night versus from a meal versus first thing in the morning, we may actually get a much higher glucose response late at night just because our cells have more trouble clearing it out of the bloodstream because that insulin signal isn't working as effectively. So that's kind of fascinating. And there's been some research showing that if you give populations standardized meals, like the exact same meal in the morning, versus at night, they'll have a, a higher glucose response on average at night. So it's like less bang for your buck, unfortunately. So the first thing I would do is to like kind of clean up that nighttime eating pattern. And if you're going to eat, make it protein and fat and try and keep the carbs like lower as you get later in the day. So that'll, that'll be one thing that kind of helps prevent spikes. Another thing is just like taking a walk after dinner to try and clear some of the blood sugar with your muscles. Uh, before you go to bed. So just get a little bit of that residual out of the bloodstream. So it's not kind of bouncing around while you're sleeping. Um, you don't want to be on this roller coaster where like the blood sugar has spiked. Maybe let's say you ate at eight 30, your blood sugar spikes at nine 30, you go to bed at 10 30, you're on the crash. As you fall asleep, you hit a, the bottom of the post meal kind of crash one hour into sleep. You wake up, you're a little bit like, oh gosh, I'm a little stressed, maybe a little anxious, can't fall back asleep. Maybe you get a snack and then you're on the roller coaster throughout the night. So you just want to avoid that. So a nice walk after dinner can help kind of stabilize things. But the long game is about metabolic flexibility. It's about giving your body the ability to be able to like process glucose effectively when glucose is around. But if glucose is low to be able to really efficiently use fat for energy, those are our two forms of energy that can be converted to ATP. But most of us in the American Western world, we eat so much sugar and so much glucose, which is our preferred form of energy that our bodies essentially get rusty at burning fat. We like never give it the opportunity to burn fat because we're like, think of the average American. It's like a sweet breakfast, a sweet coffee in the mid morning, a lunch that has bread and croutons and, you know, wraps and then a mid afternoon snack. And like, then dinner might have bread and potatoes and pasta and this and that, and then dessert. So it's constant carbohydrates and our bodies are just like, 
become so glucose dependent and we rarely have enough time. We, you know, we rarely have enough time to like keep glucose levels low enough that we actually tap into our fat stores. And this is the definition of metabolic inflexibility. We're glucose reliant. And then when our bodies don't have glucose, like a long night's sleep, it's like a panic signal for the body. Like I don't have glucose. I need glucose. And it's rusty at burning fat. So over time, if you can train your body through things like a lower glycemic diet, you know, eating like less of the refined carbohydrates and sugars, keeping your blood sugar a little bit more stable over long periods of time, and maybe even some thoughtfully timed intermittent fasting, um, you give your body this opportunity to become a fat burner and that's metabolic flexibility. And then I think this plays into nighttime glucose level, like nighttime metabolic patterns really interestingly, because as you sleep, and your glucose is kind of going lower, your body can kick into fat burning mode. And there's no, there's less of a stress signal. There's less of this crisis in the body of like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I don't have enough energy. So I think metabolic flexibility is ultimately the end game we want to get to with like good sleep. But, um, but in terms of hacks, I think like walking after meals, not eating high carb things late at night and trying to space out your last meal from when you go to bed, um, so that you're not on the downswing of a glucose spike and crash right before bed, um, are some good strategies. Those are great. And actually it's something that I've been testing out recently because there's nothing like having a toddler to show you your eating habits all of a sudden have changed now. And I'm eating a lot of like what she's eating. So the other night we did a pizza night and we just ate pizza. We're running around. We did a pizza night for her. I could tell like my sleep was so messed up. It was just pizza, nothing else. I woke up in the middle of the night. I was having nightmares. I know when I'm having nightmares, it's a blood sugar yeah, issue. It, like I, it truly is. Then the next day I knew we were going to be doing like some Indian food. My mom was going to be cooking some rice and things like that. And I said, okay, fine. We're going to have this but I'm going to eat veggies. I'm going to eat protein. I'm going to add other things to this. And it was totally fine. So it's like, I know those things are going to come up, but it's a matter of like adding in the things that you mentioned, the fiber, the protein, the healthy fats to help like mitigate what just having like straight pizza would do to your body. That is so fascinating. Kaya. Yeah. Like I feel like in that situation, if someone's like, we're having a pizza night and we're really excited about it. And obviously like pizza has a lot of joy and joy is also important for health. It's like, that would be one of those yeah days. It's like, okay, can I do the vinegar shot beforehand? Can we take a, can we have a family dance party after the pizza night? Can we maybe find a way to add a little bit more protein to the pizza, like chicken or whatever, or, you know, it is. And, and yeah, like obviously don't eliminate the fun family, like pizza night, but like do all these things around it to make it impact the blood sugar less. Um, and so that's where I think like the, the hacks, you know, can come in. So, so, so handy. Absolutely. It's so crazy. Kaya, like your experience of having nightmares at night, there was probably like two times, I want to say it was even this year. So even me knowing all this, there's still days where I'll skip a meal and I'll eat something. And it might not be like fully protein heavy or fiber heavy. It's me trying to just figure something out. And I remember getting, and let's just say it's like a busy work, work day. A lot of things are happening and moving. And I remember twice I had like, I hate to say it, but I think I had like a panic attack. Like I never feel super anxious. And I'm like, this is so weird. I feel very anxious. And Drew's like, did you eat? And I was like, you know, I skipped my breakfast. I had a small lunch, but I don't think like sometimes a day goes by where you forget. And those two instances really taught me like, I am not an anxiety 
type of person naturally, but I even fell into that. So I'm just sharing, like, actually, I'd love to get your thoughts, Casey, like how much of anxiety attacks or panic attacks can be related to blood sugar spikes and dips? Well, I've definitely had that similar experience to you, Yasmin, where I'm feeling that kind of like jittery, anxious, like not quite in my body. And I'm like, oh, this is totally food. And it takes even doing this full time. This is my life. This is all of our lives. You know, we're focused on wellness. And I still sometimes it takes me a minute to like be like, oh, like looking at the pattern of the last 24 hours. I also noticed that it's often when I've had alcohol the night before. Um, so that's another one I learned, which it has definitely has an impact on blood sugar as well. But, um, but yeah, so the research, there's a couple things that are very well established, which is that people with the most overt kind of forms of metabolic dysfunction. So this would be like type two diabetes tend to have much higher rates of anxiety and depression. So like almost two X. And so there is a link between these disorders of blood sugar and metabolism and and mental health conditions of really all kinds. And there was an amazing book that came out this year by Chris Palmer called Brain Energy. He's um, senior faculty at, of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And this book basically is a, a really tour de force around the research showing that so many of the mental health issues we're facing today from schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, to neurodevelopmental disorders, so autism, ADHD, learning challenges to neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, and others, um, that all of these have a research basis showing that they are related to some way in which our brain is not making energy properly. So metabolic dysfunction. And like we talked about earlier, like how this is showing up, where this is showing up in the brain, what cell types this is showing up in, what patterns of dysfunction can look like so many different symptoms. Like we also know that migraines and fibromyalgia, other neurologic issues, chronic pain also have its fingers in metabolic dysfunction. And so it's not like it's the only cause, but there's a very strong research basis showing that if the brain is underpowered, if any set of Mm. neurons are basically underpowered and become dysfunctional, this can show up as a wide spectrum of neurologic disorders. And so I think that's very empowering because there's actually, we have such like not great treatments for so many of these things. Like think about autism and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and even depression. Like the treatments we have now are not silver bullets. And so this is at least one lever we can both dig into with diagnostic tools and then potentially modulate with lifestyle choices. So that's just sort of a foundation for this question. When you actually get into the question of do blood sugar spikes and crashes lead to anxiety, the research is so thin. There's actually really only one case report that I know that shows that there was a young girl who had severe generalized anxiety disorder, and they were able to correlate her spikes and crashes with her anxiety attacks. And so, but like, that's an area that I think could be studied so much more because anecdotally, like in the levels community and amongst people who are testing blood sugar, which of course has become so much more popular over the past five years or so, so much anecdotal reporting of exactly what you're talking about, where this roller coaster of glucose tends to mirror the like roller coaster of our emotions. And so not only emotions, but also energy, like when we feel fatigued and when we feel energetic, people tend to find themselves feeling a lot more stable energy when they're on this sort of like low rolling hills glucose, and then a lot less energy when they're on the spike, crash, spike, crash, spike, crash roller coaster. 
So I, I so that's that's kind of where we're at. There's a mechanistic understanding of how these are related to our mental health. But in terms of actual spikes and crashes, there's not great data to show that it's related, but a lot of anecdotal evidence. There was a really interesting paper that came out in Nature Metabolism last year, really premier journal, showing that when you have a spike followed by a crash in blood sugar, that tends to be when people have the most cravings is in the crash period. So if you're just raising your glucose a little bit with a meal, it's very well balanced, protein, fiber, fat, walk after the meal, all this stuff, and you don't really have a big spike, you probably won't have a crash because the body's not on the roller coaster. It's really, the, the crashes really are after the bigger jumps in glucose. So that's what we're really trying to avoid with all this glucose monitoring stuff. And what the paper showed was that the magnitude of the crash, so how low you go after a big spike, predicted like carbohydrate consumption, carbohydrate cravings, 24-hour caloric intake, stuff like this. And so really it's like, so that kind of, it's not necessarily like anxiety, but I do think that people do sometimes have this, like that, that, that drive to like really like acquire food and that like insatiable hunger that can sometimes happen in the middle of the day. I do think it sort of overlaps in some way with anxiety. And so that's the reason I mention it is like, um, just the way, the way that blood sugar spikes are controlling our thought patterns. I think it's what's so interesting there. Um, but basically like the, what I've kind of come to with my personal experience, our levels member experience, and what I've discerned from the research is that more stable glucose levels throughout the day generally means a more stable subjective experience of the day when it comes to mood, energy, and cravings. So fascinating. And what I love about what you guys are up to at levels, as you mentioned, 93 million Americans, or is, what is it? 93%, 93%. percent yeah. of Americans are metabolically inflexible or they have metabolic syndrome potentially. Um, half of Americans have prediabetes. So, but what you guys are doing at levels is so impactful because these are actually numbers that people can change personally in their lives. Like within days, you can start to feel the difference if you monitor your blood sugar, if you have that opportunity, or if you just make the changes that Casey's talking about, you can actually reverse some of what's going on. So I love what you guys are up to. And I guess our last question is kind of a fun question, but as a doctor who's been studying metabolic health for so many years now, what are three things that you would never do to your body? <laughs> oh, well, it's funny. Cause I, you know, it's, of course it's like a never say never situation yeah. because rigidity is also not great, you yes. know, for, yes. for health. But, um, the things, and it's also a little bit of like, do what I say, not what I do. Cause sometimes, I mean, I struggle with some of these things for sure. Like, you know, of all the things that are like, I think going to most move the needle on blood sugar and metabolic health, it, it comes down to these simplest things. Like there is literally like, it's like, there's nothing fancy. It's so it's kind of, I'm going to answer this in like the inverse. It's like sleep, move, eat whole foods. It's like, it's just, it's literally so, so simple. It's like, if we skimp on one night of sleep, our metabolic health will be worse the next day. So a never would be like, never don't get a good night's sleep. Again, it's impossible. And yeah. I, you know, I, if you have children, like I don't have children and I still screw up my sleep. So, but that's like, that's one that it's like, I cannot overemphasize how important it is to get as quality sleep as you can. And so, so maybe many of you like, I'd never pull an all nighter. 
I'd never pull an all-nighter, <laughs> although I have. I just finished my first book and I like pulled oh, several all-nighters. So it's like, in theory, I'd never pull an all-nighter because it's literally a disaster for your health. But then I like literally have in the last six months. So I can't, you know, but, um, but that's one. Yeah, I would say like, I... I would say this one, actually, I feel like I can confidently say I would never eat high fructose corn syrup. You, you would have to pay me a lot of money to eat high fructose corn syrup. I just knowing what it's doing and it's not even out of like that one time is going to hurt me. It's out of solidarity, like for the, for the truly criminal nature of our system and what it's doing to people and their life and their livelihoods and their bodies and their mental health. And I just like not going to eat it. So that's one. Um, and then I'm going to say, I'm never not going to get at least 8,000 steps a day. And the reason for that is because, and this was something really fun that I learned while, while working on my, my book is that like, if you get just 8,000, it doesn't even need to be 10,000, like marginal benefit with 10,000, but 8,000 steps per day, which is just a proxy for moving your body, right? It's not about the steps. It's about not being in a chair, it like lowers your dementia risk, your type two diabetes risk, your obesity risk, your depression risk by like between 40 and 60% for all of those different conditions. Like each one has a different percentage decrease that's associated with 8,000 steps. But like that to me now has become religion for me. Mm. It's like, I am going to get the, like, like around <laughs> to the point where like at like 11 PM, I might like be like walking around my house in circles, which is a little ridiculous, but it's like, a body in motion is completely different physiology than a body that is either not in motion or a body that exercises for just one hour a day. So both of those are suboptimal sitting all day or exercising like for one hour a day and thinking that that makes you active. It's, it's very different physiology than moving in a lightweight way throughout the day. And the reason for this, which is so interesting to me, has to actually do with the translocation of glucose channels from inside the cell to the cell membrane. So to get glucose into the cells, you need to move these channels from inside the cell to the cell membrane, which then lets the glucose come in. And one of the ways that you stimulate that is through insulin. But another way that you stimulate that is by literally just standing up and walking, activating any muscle group. So if you can walk one minute, two minutes, every half hour, you're keeping the signal for those glucose channels to be at the cell membrane. And you are a body then that basically constitutively has the ability for glucose to come out of the bloodstream at the level of the muscle versus if you're sitting all day, that's not going to happen. And if you're exercising for just one hour a day, it's going to happen then, but it's not going to happen for the rest of the day. So low grade movement is like a miracle. And, and you just want to keep the, like, okay, I need to get up. I need to set a timer every half hour to just stand up for a minute and maybe do an air squat, walk around my house, whatever, to keep those channels at the membrane, different body than those other two scenarios. So never not walking 8,000 steps a day, ideally. And that's become something that's really important to me. That's one that I, I really need to work on. And I, I love talking to experts and then they say this, cause then I'm like, all right, gonna no. go get my steps in and good reminders. But I love that. Casey, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. So helpful. I think it's going to be really great for a lot of our audience, especially a lot of our women who are dealing with things like PCOS and different uh, conditions like that, that can actually be really impacted by working on their metabolic health. So thanks so much for joining us. And I think everybody's going to love the episode. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.